In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. As it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. O Mary, conceived without sin, pray, pray for, for us who have recourse to thee. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. It's easier for me to speak when I'm seated, especially since I have the papers. Before I begin the actual talk, I was going to mention a few more pointers about the rules for discernments of spirits according to the spirits' exercises of St. Ignatius. Yesterday we thought briefly about how we have these states of consolation and desolation in that the key to discernment is to not ourselves, let ourselves be moved by the evil spirit who tends to work more decisively in the moments in when we are in desolation. In that consolations are moments in when God is, can direct our spirit towards his truth, towards his will for us, but that we cannot come to prayer looking only for the consolations of God. But as St. John of the Cross says, we have to look for the God of consolations. So I just wanted to comment for a brief moment the reality of consolation and desolation and why desolation comes about. Consolation is very simple. because We've all experienced consolation. St. Ignatius says it's an interior movement aroused in the soul by which it is inflamed with love of its creator and Lord. Like all of a sudden you just feel like you love God. And as a consequence, can love no creature on the face of the earth for its own sake, but only in the creator of them all. These are like those moments that you read in the lives of the saints when they're just, all of a sudden, they're just inflamed with love of God and they, Lord, just, I'll suffer all the martyrdoms on earth for love of you if I can just have you. you know, things They do crazy things like penances, you know, St. Peter of Alcantara, one of his brothers said that he was once eight days without eating because he, just, he was just so enraptured in ecstasy that he just forgot to eat. You know? Those are the moments of spiritual consolation. It also says, St. Ignatius, uh, it can be when you shed tears that move to the love of God, either because you're sorry for your sins or you contemplate the passion of Christ or any other reason that is immediately directed to the praise and service of God. And finally, St. Ignatius, Ignatius says, I call consolation every increase of faith, hope, and love, and all interior joy that invites and attracts to what is heavenly and to the salvation of one's soul by filling it with peace and quiet 
in its creator and Lord. It seems obvious, but sometimes it's not that obvious. But anything that moves our souls to be in peace and in union with God is a consolation. And that's when God most easily speaks to our hearts and gives us light to make decisions about how we ought to live and serve Him more. Now, that being said, desolation is the opposite. St. Ignatius says, darkness of soul, turmoil of spirit, inclination to what is low and earthly. I get this a lot from people. You know, they think that they have this great, incredible spiritual life, and all of a sudden, they have these heinous temptations, and strong temptations, and they think, what is happening? Like, I thought I was going great, and all of a sudden, all of this is coming out of nowhere. Well, that's called a desolation. And it's, a nor- it's normal in the spiritual life. In fact, St. Ignatius says, if, if you don't have desolations, then something's wrong. You're not living a good spiritual life. Because when we come close to God, Satan will fight even harder to keep us from going further. So it's good to know exactly what this desolation consists of. So as we said, darkness of soul, turmoil of spirit, inclination to what is low and earthly, restlessness rising from many disturbances and temptations, which lead to want of faith, want of hope, want of love. The soul is wholly slothful, tepid, sad, and as if separated from its creator and Lord. Knowing that you aren't actually separated from God. But you feel as if you are separated from God. And then he reminds us that all of the thoughts that arise from desolation are the opposite of the thoughts that arise from consolation. So if I'm consoled and I feel like I give my life over to Christ now, this moment for all of eternity... And when I'm in desolation, it's the, it's the other way around. It's like, spiritual life, I'll never be able to live it. I'm just going to give up. And there are three reasons, St. Ignatius says, we can fall into spiritual desolation. Because we understand, all right, there's consolation and desolation. Both are part of our spiritual life. But why does God let me fall into spiritual desolation? When the rule number nine of the, the rules for the discernments of spirits... He gives three reasons. First, because we have been lukewarm, slothful in fulfilling our spiritual exercises, or our exercise, exercises of piety, St. Ignatius says. So it's our own fault. We've been negligent, and God takes away his consolations so that we wake up and fix what we're doing wrong. We're being negligent in our prayer life, well, God's not going to bless our negligence. So, all right, that's that. If you don't want to be united to me, I'm not going to give you all of these special consolations. So it helps us to return to him with greater fervor. The second reason is because God wants to put us to the test. See if we're really capable of serving him without so many consolations. Yeah, of course, when I'm filling your heart with all of these feelings of of joy and spiritual strength you're really willing to serve me but when i 
take away those feelings? Are you still willing to, to serve me, to love me? A lot of people think that when I cease to feel God's love within, it's because God's abandoned me. But we have to understand that sometimes God gives us great spiritual feelings to provoke in us a desire to serve Him and to follow Him and to love Him. It's as if we're feeling just how much God is loving us when we have consolations. But when He takes those consolations away, we have to understand that uh, this is our opportunity to show God that we love Him. It's the opposite. Instead of Him making me feel good, maybe it's my time to try and make God feel good. I know it sounds kind of funny because God is God, but He does want to be consoled. So just remember that. Sometimes He puts us to the test to make sure that we serve Him, not because we're, getting, we're feeling good, you know, but just for a pure love of Him. And the third reason is because God wants us to be humble. Realize that if, if God were to do everything for us right away, we would be very prideful. Oh, look, I'm already perfect. No, I already got over that. I already beat. I got the spiritual life beat, you know. It's like playing a video game or something. Yeah, I already level 10. Yeah, I already got that done. I already got the high score. I'm the best. Of course, God's not going to bless that. So sometimes... We're not being negligent in our spiritual life. We've even shown God that we're willing to serve Him in desolation. But we have that kind of subtle tendency to think that we're perfect. And He takes away those consolations just so that we know, listen, it's not for you to go making a nest in a place that's not yours. Prayer, consolation, all of this is a gift that I give to my children. Not for you to decide when to have and when not to have. St. Ignatius says, God does not wish us to build on the property of another, to rise up in spirit in a certain pride and vain glory and attribute to ourselves the devotion and other effects of spiritual consolation. So it's a good, it's a good reminder um, of how God works in our souls and what to do when we are in spiritual desolation. Because we all experience it, and sometimes we feel like the world is ending when we enter into spiritual desolation. But the idea is we have to be calm and patient and to examine our conscience to see if we fall and see what category we fall into for our own negligence, if God is just putting me to the test, or if He's just asking me to be more humble. That said, not that everyone is here, we're going to move along to our the talk, which is not so much a meditation, although it will help to meditate, but it is a topic of formation in the truths of our faith. In today, in the light of the time of year, and when we find ourselves at the end of the liturgical year, we're going to speak about the last things. The last things. Yeah. Classic Catholic teaching divides the last things into four categories. Death, judgment, hell, and heaven. Or heaven and hell. But since I don't want to go out on a negative note, we're going to talk about heaven last. You know, Because it's the most important. 
um, you could, might say that it seems like something's missing from that list. You know, like, where's purgatory? Like, obviously, purgatory is not on the list because it's not a last thing. It's a temporary thing. You know, heaven or hell will be the final destination of our souls. So from purgatory, it means that we're going to get to heaven. Thanks be to God. Resurrection doesn't come out in that list, but it's included because we know that after death and at the end of the world, in the last day, we will be judged, but God will resurrect all of humanity. As St. John says in chapter 5 of his gospel, some to the resurrection of life and others to the resurrection of condemnation which we will talk about. Um, obviously, the last day is another category that doesn't come out about in this list, but it's included. There will be a last day, what is normally called the eschaton, which is a Greek word for the end. It's the end. There's also another word called the parousia, which means the second coming, the coming. In fact, the, the parousia is a, it's a Greek word as well. But it's the word they used when the emperor returned from conquering and he entered into his own city, triumphant. So that's a word that they use for the second coming of Christ. But these are all things that obviously are included in the last things. But the tradition has defined them as these four. So we're going to just speak about them little by little. The first one... Death. <clears throat> a lot of what I say, I'll be taking from uh, one, a certain author. He's a Spanish Jesuit from the 20th century. His name is Candido Pozo, which you can't really translate because it's his name, you know. But <laughs> Candido can mean like clean, white, and Pozo means well, like where you get water from. So we can call him clean well if we like. What we call Candido Pozo. This book is called Teología del Masaya, which means the theology of the things beyond this world. Masaya is beyond, to infinity and beyond. And it's an excellent, it's an excellent work. I don't know if he's, this has ever been translated into English, because usually in every language there are theologians that write. Uh, theological manuals for seminaries or other kind of theological works about these topics in our own language. But since I did not study theology here in the United States, I have no idea who has a book about these things. But it doesn't matter because in the end, it's all based on Scripture and the Magisterium. So what does the Scripture say about death? Well, in the first place, that it's something that everybody fears. Fear is a natural feeling before death. It's the moment of the greatest solitude of the human experience. Because in death, it's the moment when I am truly alone before God. Jesus felt it as well. From the cross, he cried out, My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Forget that Jesus was made like unto us in everything except in sin. So he experienced as well the feeling of abandonment, the feeling of fear and solitude before his death. Um, 
Secondly, although it is a natural reality, it has been historically and uh, biblically considered a consequence of sin. For example, the Book of Wisdom. Wisdom 2.24 By the envy of the devil sin entered the world and with sin, death. Um, Romans 5.12 I have my Bible here because it's important to have a Bible. This is sidebar. You should have, everyone should have their own Bible where you can write in it and make little notes and, and use it whatever you need because like we heard in the reading today I thought it was a great chapter this Father Joe Bloomer about the Bible and St. Jerome and all that it's like ignorance of Christ is ignorance of the of, sorry the other way around ignorance of the scriptures ignorance of Christ and ignorance of Christ is ignorance of the Eucharist and we're here because we have the mission to defend the Eucharist so it's important that we know the scriptures well Romans 5.12 Therefore, a sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all men sinned, etc., etc., etc. It's a long sentence. So we know that death is a consequence of sin. It doesn't mean that we were, our nature was invincible at first. We believed that there was what we call a preternatural gift of immortality. But preter or preter means beyond like beyond our nature so we had our nature and God gave our the first human beings the gift of not having to die but by our sins he took away that gift because we did not obviously we weren't worthy to continue receiving this gift that he had given us of immortality that's how death entered into the human experience. <coughs> Thirdly, Christ came to destroy death by his own death. Dying, he destroyed death. And with death, he destroyed Satan's power. That's what Hebrews 2.14 says. Christ destroyed the devil's power with his own death. And this is kind of like the supernatural light that Christianity infuses into our human experience. Death isn't the last word. Christ has conquered death with his death. It doesn't, it doesn't mean that we're not going to be afraid of death. That's normal. But we now have a supernatural hope behind it. Fourthly, um, when we read the books of, or the letters of St. Peter and St. Paul in the, in the New Testament, they refer to death as the putting off of my tent, 2 Peter 1.13, or being away from my body, 2 Corinthians 5, which is signifying to us that in the moment of death, there is an element within us that survives, it persists what we call the immortal soul. It doesn't mean that we, in death, we become more human beings. It just means that in death, there's something that survives. And that's important because after death, we will be judged and we will receive our reward immediately, which we'll see 
a little bit further along. Uh, next, uh, the New Testament speaks of dying in the Lord. The phrase in the Lord, which can be found in the book of Revelation above all. Revelation 14, 13. Blessed are those who die in the Lord. They are in peace. Their works follow them. I don't remember the exact translation, but that's why I tell you the scriptures that in free time, when you go back home, you've got plenty of things to look into and to study and to come to know more. But it's, it's a new style, a new, a unique way of dying, dying in the Lord. In fact, in baptism, we die to sin and are destined to this new form of dying, which is called in the Lord. This is the teaching of St. Paul in the letter to the Romans, chapter 6. We are buried with Christ in baptism, and we rise to new life with Him. It's a sacramental reality. It means that the death of Christ belongs to me, because I am a member of Christ. It doesn't mean that my death, my death obviously will be included in the death of Christ, but it's literally everything that Christ died, I have. I've died with Him, and I've risen with Him. And that's reality that already exists, and that means that when I die, my death will be of the nature of those who die in the Lord. In fact, in the, in the New Testament, sometimes death is considered a type of baptism. I have a baptism with which to be baptized in wood that my moment come, says the Lord. So Christian life itself is kind of like a preparation for death. <laughs> it's one of the, it sounds really kind of creepy when you say that. Everyone who is born is born to die. That's what there's a philosopher in the 20th century, Heidegger, said that man is a being for death. Uh, it's kind of creepy, but it has a little bit of reality there because death is kind of like the most important moment of our lives. It's the moment of truth. How we have lived uh, decides what value our death has. St. Paul even calls life a continual dying, 2 Corinthians 4, because we have to die to the old man that lives within us, which is the egocentrical, selfish man, so that Christ may live in us. The scripture talks about death as the end of our earthly pilgrimage. And that's, that's going to lead us to our next point. Right? This is kind of just kind of Characteristics that we get from the scriptures about death. The Magisterium, what does it say? Well, Magisterium, the most important document of the Magisterium, was written in the 14th century by Benedict Twelfth, And the document is called Benedictus Deus. It is a very short constitution in which he defines what happens to the human person at the moment of death. And in that document, he says that immediately after death, the Latin words have been really, are very, very important, mox, M-O-X, post-mortem. Mox means right away. It's trying to indicate that that's it. It's the end. There's, there's nothing more after death that can influence our eternal destination. It's the last moment. We got one shot. Immediately after death is when we receive our reward. Or at least it's declared unto us what our reward will be. 
Because if we have to go to purgatory, obviously we're not receiving heaven immediately. But the idea of the word immediately, moks, is that our pilgrimage is now. This is important because we live in a society of second chances, which is good. That's God gives us all a second chance. But we have a problem because we're educated to think that if we just don't do stuff, then like other people will do it for us. This happens a lot. It happened in my family too. My, my mom, my, you know, like whatever. I, I just kind of leave something without doing and then she just comes along and cleans up after me, right? But the problem is that young people think that that's how life works. And they don't know that there are consequences for the decisions that they make. I have a family now in our parish in, in Spain and the older daughter just up and left a year ago with her boyfriend. They just started living together in another country. And lo and behold, a year later, they get a telephone call. Listen, we're in, we're in Sweden. We don't like it. We want to come home. Just like that. Of course, she expects to come home and enter into family life as if nothing had happened with her boyfriend. Yeah. And of course, the parents suffer because they love their daughter and they want to receive her, but they don't want to receive her in that way. And I try to give them, you know, pointers and things like that, because obviously the other siblings suffer from the situation. It's very uncomfortable. It's a bad example. But of course she comes and then she gets angry because her parents put uh, rules. All right. If you don't have anywhere to live, obviously for your own fault. uh, Well, you're sleeping here and he's sleeping there. And she gets all angry as if she was the one who's being, <laughs> who's suffering the injustice, right? But I, I'm seeing in this, this is, this is the mentality. My con- I, there's no consequences to what I do. If I make a bad decision, well, other people have to suffer the consequences, but I still need to get what I deserve. But she does not deserve to be treated as if she was the queen returning from her visit to whoever. So it's important that we understand that we've got one life and death is a very important moment. St. Alphonsus de Liguria, de Ligurio, I don't know how to say that in English, Alphonsus Maria, he's got a book called Preparation for Death. And it's just meditation after meditation about how you'll be buried in the ground and how the worms will eat you and all that kind of good stuff. And it helps us a lot to realize that everything, my health, my wealth, uh, everything that I have here below, the moment of death, goodbye. You know, I used to say, he who dies with the most toys still dies. <laughs> so we got to have things clear. It's important to think about that. The Magisterium also in Lumen Gentium, <clears throat> number 48, talks about death. And it's the same thing of what I've been saying now. It says, Expleto unico terrestris nostre vite cursu. Mm. Mm. Of course, you understand. Uh, once the one, one course of our earthly life is done, etc., etc., etc. One shot. One shot. Doesn't mean that you don't have to give your children second chances, but. It's the idea of repentance. The Lord gives us second chances when we repent. But 
once we're, there's no repentance after death. So we have to have this clear. The way we live influences how we will die. And then in Gaudium et Spes, which is another document from the Second Vatican Council, number 14, it doesn't talk about death in particular, but it does talk about our human composition. We are one in body and soul. Corpore et anima unus. Which means that death is the moment when the soul and the body are separated. That's kind of just kind of helps define what we should consider death. Because a lot of people have near-death experiences, but in the end they don't really die. Because they're still alive. Their, their soul is still in their body. So when that separation happens, it's death. There are a few errors about death that have existed in theology. One of them is called metempsychosis. It's also called the transmigration of souls. It's also called, more popularly, reincarnation. The fact that once this life is done, my soul just kind of like hops into another body and life goes on. Or in some religions that, depending on how you lived, karma, like if you live bad, well, you'll be reincarnated as like a cockroach or, or something really ugly that nobody likes. Or if you live a really great life, you'll be reincarnated like as, I don't know, the Prince of Egypt, uh, President of the United States, somebody really, really important, you know? Obviously, that doesn't happen. It's an error. But there have been Christians who have thought about it. There's even one, there's a very famous and important ecclesial writer from the third century, late third century, maybe the early fourth century as well, named Origen. And he believed in something that he called the apocatastasis, which means that after death, uh, the souls that go to hell will be there, will be purified, and in the end, they'll get out of hell. Uh, and the souls that are in heaven, like, they could basically sin again, and then they'd have to like go through purification again. And there's lots of different nuances of this theory, which has obviously been condemned very shortly after he wrote about it, but he was wrong. And it's understandable why he might fall into that error, because God is merciful. And you say, how can God send anyone to hell? But if we read the New Testament, we will see that the apocatastasis has no resonances whatsoever in the scripture, nor in the the tradition of our faith. This doesn't mean that God is not merciful, but it just means that hell exists and it's forever, and heaven exists and it's forever, and they each have their reasons, and there's only one life. Another uh, error is the theory that there might be another chance after death. Like in life, there are venial sins, and then there are mortal sins that are divided into like lesser mortal sins and greater mortal sins, because the lesser ones are from weakness, and the greater ones are because I hate God. And only the ones where you hate God are the ones that will be a cause for you to go to hell. But after death, if you have lesser mortal sins, you'll get another chance. But that has no resonance at all with the sacred scriptures. So mortal sin literally means that the life of God in you does not exist. Mortal means death. So you are not in union with God. And the magisterium in Benedictus Deus says immediately after the soul's who are in the grace of God and have no need of purification will immediately enter into the eternal joys and the souls that are separated from God by mortal sin 
remember, mortal sin is grave matter, full knowledge, and full consentment of my will, free will. So if I have one of those on my soul, that's that. That's my judgment. It's the same thing. Everyone gets a second chance. But no. Death is death. All right. I know I'm just kind of repeating things, but it's, it's good that it kind of enters in because it depends on... The way we live depends a lot on how we think we're going to die. And our desire to evangelize sometimes is also influenced by this because it's not indifferent the way that people live. Everyone has to give an account of how they've lived. There's another theory as well that's called the final decision in the moment of death, which is kind of important. It's like there's never... We're not determined absolutely by the life we lived. In the very, very moment of death, we can change our minds and convert to the Lord. But it's important that we understand this always in the light of the light of the life that we have lived up into the moment of death. We are people that are formed by our decisions. The philosophers say that we have two na- two natures. The first nature which is given us, which is what we are, body and soul, all of our capacities, uh, our, psych- our psychology, all these things. And then they say we have a second nature which is more which is more like our moral nature. According to the decisions that we make, we come to be certain persons. <coughs> make it simple, all right. If you rob a lot, what are you? A thief. Like if you if you kill a lot of people, you are a murderer, serial killer. You tell lies constantly, you are a liar. You know? We say that kind of things. If you tell one lie, you kill one person, or you rob one thing, does that mean that you are a thief, a murderer, a liar, etc.? Not necessarily. But the more that you commit an action, the more you are being shaped into that kind of person. So we have to understand that if we live in a certain way all of our life, at the moment of death, that's who we are. And to change would only be an extraordinary grace from God. And we can't make the extraordinary graces of God the ordinary course of human life. Thus, the importance that we live well. It's true that even in the last moment of life, you can repent from your sins and accept God's salvation. That's the, the message of what they say, the good thief, right? Although there's a lot of arguments that how can you be a good thief? Obviously, he was a horrible thief. Because if, had he been a good thief, he wouldn't have got caught. Right? <laughs> but he was forgiven in the last moment of his life. And Christ said to him, Today you will be with me in paradise. That brings us to our second point, which is judgment. There are plenty of scriptures about judgment as well. Something I'm not someone who always preaches fire and brimstone. But it's part of the gospel. And nor am I someone who goes around and starts condemning everyone because you don't have what I have and you're going to be judged and all that kind of stuff because I, I confess that I was worthy of going to hell. Yeah, I probably still am, but the Lord, he's working with me. So I realize that I've received mercy. We all have to have this in mind. 
usually people who the great majority of just Catholic Christians that don't live their faith well, it's because they're ignorant. And we should all realize that because if we haven't if we had a moment in our life and they haven't lived our faith, that we may have even received communion and mortal sin, for example, we had no idea that we were committing a sin. No one ever told us. And we're so brainwashed by the society we live in that we, we don't know. So it's important as, as we re- read these things, it has to have first implications on my own life to help me to live better. And at the same time, a desire that others live in a way that is pleasing to God so that they do not fall into the just judgment of God by their own fault. We can help with our prayers, with our Christian example, with our words, etc. This great sacred scripture, what does it say about judgment? Hebrews 9.27 It is appointed for men to die once, and after that comes judgment. <clears throat> Matthew chapter 25 In the end he will come and he will separate the ones to the right, the others to the left. Come, blessed of my Father, because when I was hungry you gave me to eat. When I was thirsty you gave me something to drink, etc. When, Lord? When you did it to the least of one of these my brethren, you did it for me. And the same thing with the wicked and the impious. When you didn't do it for one of these, the least of mine, you did not do it for me. Which means that our judgment will have to be with how we lived and treated others in our life. We are social beings. No one is an island. The man is not an island. I think it was Thomas Merton said that. He might have said it the other way around. Man is not an island. We are, we've been loved into creation. So how we treat others is part of our judgment. 2 Corinthians 5.10 For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive good or evil according to what he has done in the body. It's pretty simple. My behavior here on earth, in my body, depends or makes my judgment depend on my actions. Ezekiel 7, the idea of Ezekiel is God will judge you and punish you and punish you according to your ways. Matthew 12, men will render account for every careless word they utter. Not just their actions, but their words as well. The last line of the book of Ecclesiastes says, For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. That's Ecclesiastes 12.14. It's the last line of the book of Ecclesiastes. And in the same tradition, 1 Corinthians 4.5, Who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then every man will receive his condemnation or his commendation from God. I like these last two texts because uh, it's kind of like what Jesus said. What is done in the, in the darkness will be proclaimed in the, in the rooftops. And the idea of judgment after death is that we won't be able to hide. Now, here on earth, we can kind of hide who we are. We can uh, fool other people 
we can lie, we can appear to be good people and not be. But in judgment, and above all, in the resurrection, what we have in our souls will shine forth through our bodies. Just like the risen Christ, uh, His divinity shines through His risen body in a perfect way and manifests His being. Well, we, in a similar way, our being will be manifest through our risen bodies. Now, if I am holy, then I will become one of the most beautiful creatures ever. But if I have a life that has been filled with sin, then I will be one of the ugliest creatures ever. In such a way that I will not be able to hide anymore. And that's the judgment. My, my being, for all of eternity, will be according to how I have lived here on earth. The magisterium speaks about it as well in the same documents, Benedictus Deus, just different nuances of what I've already said, but immediately after death, you will be judged. Mm. I'm not going to say any more about that because, I mean, it's pretty clear. You have the scriptures that you can look up and reflect upon and meditate upon. Uh, but it's important to know that it is a reality. I will make one distinction. We believe as Catholics in a particular judgment at the moment of death and a final judgment in the last day. Why both? Because St. Paul speaks about as being away from my body. I would prefer to be away from my body to be with the Lord. So he obviously understood that when we die, at least when he died because he was faithful to the Lord, he would already be with the Lord. So we know that he doesn't have to wait until the, the final day to be with Jesus. So we understand that there is what we call an intermediary um, eschatology. All this is called eschatology, the study of the last things. But the final judgment is necessary. Why? Two reasons. Corporality and publicity. What does that mean? Publicity in the sense that making public, not, not like advertisements. Corporality because our body, the, the saints who are in heaven are not perfect. They're perfectly happy, but they're, they're still waiting to be with their bodies. They're not human beings right now. They're floating spirits or, that are enjoying God's presence, but they're longing. Their being is desiring to be with their body because that's what we are. We're not spirits that are uh, imprisoned in bodies. That's the Platonic philosophy. We are body and soul. Jesus Christ is in heaven with his body and his soul. The Blessed Virgin Mary, who has merited the greatest reward, already has her body and soul in heaven. So this is the finality of, of the last judgment. It won't change the, judge, the particular judgment, but it will increase the intensity of what we've already received because we will live it in plenitude with our bodies. In publicity, in a sense of being public, because like I said, we are social beings. And justice, God's justice, demands as well justice among men. So there are situations in this world that are very unjust. And that justice can only come in the next 
I've seen it in many, I've lived now in several places in the world. And I've got, there's lots of examples I could have. Maybe little by little we can comment, make comments on it. But one that comes to mind now is a situation we had in Ecuador where there was one man or one family that owned an incredible amount of land nearby where we live, where, nearby where Sister Claire died. And how did he come to become the owner of all this land and all this livestock, etc., etc.? Well, he went one by one, family to family of those who had land, and offered to buy their land or to die. And if they didn't want to sell their land, well, he just shot them right there or killed them with the machete because that's what they do. And he had this whole system like a mafia that went little by little eradicating all of the families who owned that land. And you think... And how is it possible that the government doesn't intervene? How is it possible that there isn't justice for these families that have been disowned from their properties, that have lost their fathers, their mothers, I mean, above all their fathers, because they kill the father of the family? And how is it possible? You can see, you just feel in your heart that it's screaming for justice. But this justice is not given on this earth. And Jesus helps us with his parables know that there will be justice in the end in like the, the parable of the rich man and poor Lazarus. Hmm? Poor Lazarus in his life received bad things while you received good things. Now here in this world, he receives his reward and you receive your punishment. So this is, that's the importance of the final judgment as well. is to make public and to, the justice of those who served God with faithfulness and the just reward of those who chose not to serve God, but lived for themselves. I, like, I love St. Augustine when he says, there's only two types of people in the world. There's those who love God, even unto despising themselves. It doesn't mean you have to hate yourself. It means that this is an absolute preference to God, even above my own life and my own likes. And then there's the people who love themselves, even unto despising God. And in the end, that's, that's the separation. So the, the final judgment will reveal this to all. And what is the final destination? Well, first of all, we'll talk about the reprobate souls, hell, the reality of hell. I find that there's, there's a lot of theological reflection that can, that's very positive, but the, the lives... The writings and the visions of the saints are much more positive or much more helpful. But we're going to go, we're going to be a little bit systematic following Candido Pozo. And we're going to see what the scripture says about hell. In the Old Testament, we see that there is a progression in the belief of retribution for impious people after death. Because in the beginning, a lot of scriptures, it seems like in the world is where you get reward. There's even a psalm that says, I've never seen a just man go, go hungry or suffer hunger. I don't know how to say that in English. It's my Spanishness. And that the, the evil in this world will not reach half of their, of their life or like God will cut off their life in, in the midst of their days, things like that. You, you get that kind of sense in some of the psalms and some of the Old Testament writings. But little by little, people start to understand uh, that's not like that. There, in fact, there's the, the reality of Sheol, 
Sheol, Sheol. I'll say Sheol. Which is kind of like, it was the place of the dead in general. The word was Rephaim, the dead, plural. But little by little, they started seeing that, no, 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 there's like, Sheol will be the place of, for the, the impious, whereas like the Abraham's bosom will be for the good. Little by little in the, the Old Testament, they started kind of separating that. You see it in Job. Job, could, they couldn't really explain the reality of good people who suffer or bad people who don't suffer. They said, well, it's just a mystery of God. But if you reach certain scriptures, you realize that there's been a development, a progression in the belief. For example, Psalms 16, 49, and 73. They're called the mystic Psalms or the mystical Psalms. And that's where there's an (coughs) obvious understanding that God will save my soul from the abyss. In one of the Psalms, Psalm 16, we pray in in night prayer on every Thursday. You will not let my body see corruption. You will protect my soul from the abyss. So we understand that he's, it was Sheol. He's going to save my soul from Sheol, which means that I'm not going to stay there. There's, all right. Well, anyways, so we get that idea. Wisdom 4 and Daniel 2 also speak about the retribution of the impious after death. So that's kind of like the progression of the understanding that there's a place of condemnation, we can say. Just because that's the word that we kind of all understand. Isaiah 66, verse 24, isn't a conceptual preparation for hell, as we understand it in the light of our Lord, but it is a kind of a literary representation because it's an image that Jesus uses later on. I can, I can read it too because it's helpful. Isaiah 66. It's kind of scary. Don't get scared. And they shall go forth and look on the dead bodies of the men that have rebelled against me. For their worms shall not die. Their fire shall not be quenched. And they shall be in abhorrence to all flesh. They recognize in this, speaking of a place in particular outside of Jerusalem, the valley of Hinnom. Hinnom was the name of the person who lived there, but it literally means crying or wailing. It's the valley of wailing. And it's precisely this image that Jesus takes up when he talks about Gehenna, which is the the dumpster of Jerusalem. He said, and the idea of of corpses burning there and the worms eating, that's what he uses, that imagery, to talk about Gehenna or hell. In the New Testament, John, John the Baptist already understands because he warns the hypocrites, the Pharisees, to convert or get ready for their recompense, which is hell. And then in the rest of the New Testament, we have lots of indications from our Lord. Like I said, in the parables, above all in Matthew chapter 24, chapter 25, which is the, the, what we call the eschatological discourse, the St. Matthew's Gospel is very well divided and organized. It's five discourses that are kind of like the center of, of the entire book. The first is the Sermon on the Mount. 
in chapter 5 through 7. Then there's the, what they call the disciple or apostolic discourse when he's talking about the apostles, like go forth, what you have to do, all those kind of things, chapter 10. Chapter 13, the discourse of the parables. Chapter 18, the discourse of the church, the ecclesiological discourse. And then chapter 24, 25 is the discourse on the last things when he explains about the judgment and he makes it clear. Uh, there's a division of humanity into two groups. I'll put the sheep to my right and the goats to my left. Right? That has no political implications, just in particular. I'd like to make that clear. Uh, that there's an, a definitive exclusion from the kingdom of God, such as we see in those same chapters of Matthew's Gospel, but also in 1 Corinthians 6, 9. Do you not know that I don't know, adulterers, sodomites, murderers, etc., etc., will not inherit the kingdom of God. The same words have come out in Ephesians 5, verse 5. There is the image of sensible pain, fire, in Gehenna. Matthew 13 and 41. I think it's the separation, and I think of the fish. You know, and he catches all the fish and the bad ones they'll throw out. And he says, and there will be weeping and grinding of teeth. Matthew nine forty three to 48, where the worm does not die, nor the fire is quenched. I think that's the same image from Isaiah. Jesus is using scripture. And finally, it's, it's eternal. It's forever. This is probably the most horrifying thing that you could think about when you contemplate hell if you have a bad day or you're sick or whatever you kind of at least you have kind of like that hope that I'll go to sleep and tomorrow's another day but in hell there is no tomorrow and you know it and you know it's your fault that you're there and that will just be eating at you eating it for all of eternity it's horrifying uh, there are a few errors about it, which I've already mentioned. One, the apocatastasis, which is basically everyone will be saved. There's another one called conditionalism, which means on the condition that you've lived a good life, you'll enter into eternity. But if you've not, you'll just be kind of annihilated at the moment of death. You just cease to exist. But obviously it doesn't correspond to what the Lord has taught us. And then another thing that's called, uh, well, it's called, Aterminismo in Spanish. A-terminism. A is a privative. And terminism means the end. Which basically, like, the, like I said, the migration of souls, reincarnation. In the end, it's just a constant process. That even if you go to hell, in the end you'll be reincarnated. And et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. An unending cycle. Obviously, those are errors or heresies. But like I said, it's really important, uh, this, the writings of the saints, for us to understand the reality of hell. Jesus says it, but the saints have seen it. And there's been lots. St. Veronica Giuliani, the, the shepherd children in Fatima have seen hell. St. Faustina. St. John Bosco has a fantastic dream about hell. Very, very interesting because it's like, it's a, a slippery slope. It starts kind of, kind of level but little by little by little and then it towards the end it's almost like a complete downward slope 
And he said that he saw the, the young men just running full speed towards the gates of hell as if they were fleeing from something. He said, what is, but why are you, what are you fleeing from? And they, they said to John, Don Bosco, from the wrath of God. They fear more the wrath of God than the place of torture towards where they are fleeing. You know? But the one that I wanted to share with you is the vision that our Lord told to St. Catherine of Siena. And she said that there are four torments, or the four principal torments of the damned. And the first is that they're deprived of the vision of God. God said it. The first is that they see themselves deprived of the vision of me, which is such pain to them that, if it were possible, they would rather choose the fire and the tortures and torments and to see me than to be without the torments and not to see me. It's, it's a worse suffering not being able to see God than to suffer the, the physical torments of hell. To be deprived of God, God is our life. God is the source of all life. And to be deprived of our vision of Him is the worst suffering that a human being can experience. It's the danger here in this life as well. Why is there so much depression? Why is there so much suicide? The, our, the servant brothers in Ireland have been telling us there's a, there's a rate of 10 suicides a week in Ireland for young people, which is alarming. Where's the Christian hope? It's not to be without God. They can't bear to live. And they're trying to kind of escape from the, the living hell that is life without God. So it's important that we preach the word and we share the gospel message because that's the worst eternity we can live. The second is the worm of conscience, which he says, which gnaws unceasingly, seeing that the soul is deprived of me and of the conversation of the angels through her sin and made worthy of the conversation in sight of the devils. Like I said, you know it's your fault. And for all of eternity, you know that I could have changed. That God gave me an opportunity to convert my life, and I choose not to. And that itself would just be eating away, eating away, eating away your conscience forever. The third pain, says, said the Lord to St. Catherine, is the sight of the devil. Just as in heaven we will be ecstatic at the sight of God, in, he in hell we will be horrified and tortured by the sight of the devil, which obviously isn't the opposite of God, but he, since he is the most excellent being that God has created, he has been transformed by his evil choices, he likewise is the ugliest of all creatures. And we'll be tormented. He'll be our, our roommate for all of eternity. And that's it's the worst. And the last is the fire. The fire that burns and does not consume. Because the being of the soul cannot be consumed. But even then, he has permitted the fire to burn their torments as well in their bodies without consuming because it is just that since you have sinned with your body, your body will also receive uh, the just recompense. And then that's another theory. I mean, we don't really know exactly how it's going to be, but 
He said there are other, from those first four torments, then come all of the rest. Cold, heat, gnashing of teeth, etc., etc. A lot of people think that according to the sin that you most sinned in life, that's how you, your body will be tormented to the end. But there's two different torments. The first one is called the pain, is the pain of the separation from God. And the other ones are the pains of kind of like our just punishment according to what we've done. But the principal one, like the Lord says to St. Catherine, is being deprived of God. Anyways, these words from the saints are very helpful to meditate upon. St. Ignatius in the spiritual exercises has a meditation just on hell. A whole day meditating on hell. Five times. Because there's there's five meditations in a day for St. Ignatius. So the first is the meditation of hell. The second, a repetition of the meditation on hell. The third, another repetition. And at the end of the day, just to apply your senses to the meditation, you know hearing what is what is screamed the blasphemies the hatred smelling the horrible smell like imagine the, the worst smell you can imagine uh, seeing the ugliest things all these things and you're supposed to like apply your senses to the reality and then once you meditate that it's like you don't i'll go to confession i'll fast eight days a week i don't know i'll i'll do whatever anything uh just keep me out of that and it's a special grace Hell is a very special grace for us who are alive because I don't know about you, but when I first started practice the faith, I was afraid to go to hell and that's what got me in the confessional. Later on, you start a spiritual life with the Lord and you realize that there's so much more, but it's a special grace to kind of get a little push to those who are kind of like, oh, I don't know, I don't know. Well, think about the consequences, my friend. Think about the consequences. And the last point, because we're running out of time, and everyone's got their bellies are grumbling because they want to have lunch we're going to speak about heaven heaven is one of the most difficult realities to speak of because as St. Paul says in the first letter to the Corinthians eye has not seen ear has not heard the mind of man is not capable of contemplating what God has prepared for us for those who love him so how are we going to talk about heaven? It's, it's almost impossible well since Jesus talked about it we can do it too the scriptures speak about the category of eternal life. God is the source of all life. God alone possesses life. He is the living God. Deuteronomy 5.23 Jeremiah 23.36 He is the one who lives eternally. Deuteronomy 32.40 Daniel 12.7 Among others. And he's opposed to the idols, you know, because the idols are dead. But God is alive. So the Israelites always swore by the life of God because it's the most absolute thing. It's the source of all being is God's life. But in the New Testament, Jesus already ex- explains to us the reality of the eternal life. It's beautiful because in St. John, St. John has a very rich theology about life and death. Um. That has to do with the Word of God, of course. In the beginning was the Word, and in Him was life, all that was created. All that was created in Him, in the Word, was life. Like, the Word is also the source of life, Jesus. To believe in Jesus is to possess that life. John 3.36 or John 6, 47, which you all know very well. He eats my body and drinks my blood, has, possesses eternal life in present. 
and I will raise him up on the last day. So we know that the eternal life that God shares with us is already existing here in this world, thanks to the Word made flesh. But beyond that, there are certain characteristics that the Scripture tell us of how heaven will be. And the, the principal one is intimacy with God. Like we said before, St. Paul, I desire to be away from my body and to be with Christ. That should be enough. And there's a lot of people that are like, what are we going to do in heaven? I'm going to be bored. It's like, listen, just seeing like the resurrected Christ, you're going to be lost in ecstasy for like 500 billion years. So, you know, don't worry too much about it. You're going to be with the Lord. Intimacy with God. Uh, Philippians 1.23 and 1 Thessalonians 4.17 The second characteristic that is common in the New Testament of what heaven will be for is the vision of God an intuitive vision of God there are two scriptures that are essential the first is 1 John 3.2 we do not know yet what it will be, but we know that when we see him, we will be like him. Something like that, right? I have to translate it into English. I'm going to read it because it's beautiful text. First John 3, 2. Beloved, we are God's children now. It does not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. It's beautiful because it means that Christ, even if it's, it might be referring to the divine essence, God will give us a special grace to be able to contemplate God's being, which is infinite. We, we will be capable of contemplating in a certain way in the infinite God, which is beauty, goodness, truth. But even Christ himself, like I said, in, the ju- in, in our judgment, what we have within will shine forth through our body. But what Christ has in is the second person of the Most Holy Trinity, the source of all life and of all happiness. He is the Word made flesh. So seeing Christ, we, are, we will be seeing God. Let's contemplate that. The second text is 1 Corinthians 13.12. I don't remember what it says, so we're going to see. 1 Corinthians 13, it has to do with love. Of course, it's the hymn to love. 1 Corinthians 13, 12. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall understand fully, even as I have been fully understood. So faith, hope, love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. Heaven will be love. This is beautiful because this is the intimacy. In the Magisterium later on, in Benedictus Deus, there will be an immediate vision. There will be no creatures in between us and God, as there is now. There will be no sacramental reality. We won't need the Eucharist because we'll see Jesus as he is. He won't have to hide. And the Benedictus Deus says that they'll be showing the divine essence as it is, naked, clear, open, God will have nothing to hide to us. This is beautiful because it's, it's a very spousal language that the magisterium and the scriptures use. 
and that it's been made very popular by the writings of St. John Paul II. We all have written in our beings, in our bodies, the spousal, spousal meaning, that we are meant to be a gift. And he explains that in heaven, according to the words of Christ, we will not, be, we will not marry nor be given in marriage. Why? Because we will all belong completely to God. And he will mm, manifest himself completely to us. You know, it's, it's kind of a it's difficult uh, comparison, but that's kind of the right of spouses. I belong to you, you belong to me. I have nothing to hide. You see everything. And that's what God will give to us. And we'll be lost in contemplation. So it's beautiful to think about this. We will all possess God, and God will possess us. It'll be an eternal marriage with God. Anyway, the other ones were, I already said one, love of God. There's intimacy with God, vision of God, love of God, 1 Corinthians 13. The fourth, joy, of course. Hello, joy. And then the fifth is the eternity of heaven. We have to have this clear because people are like, well, is heaven, what is heaven going to be? Like heaven, I'm going to just go up into the clouds and I'm just going to be contemplating God. Boring. You know, people seem to think that heaven is boring. And we don't realize that it's not a, a, a static vision. It's an ecstatic vision. You're going to be entering into eternal relationship with God. It's kind of, it's like I said, it's like a marriage. When people get married, what's the problem? You don't know what the future is going to be like. But you have that promise, I will love you until the end. I will make you happy until the end. And that's the promise that, that God makes. So you have to kind of open up your, your mind and contemplate everything that's going to be coming out in heaven. It's not the end. It's like the beginning. It's the beginning of eternity. So it's going to be, it's kind of like a big adventure. You know, you don't know what's going on. But if we don't get into gear and make ourselves worthy to inherit heaven, we're not going to be, we're not going to live the adventure with the Lord. So, get into gear. I like the thing about heaven too. Like, there's little kind of things that help kind of lift up your spirits. Like, I think when I was a little kid, my mom used to make me peanut butter and jelly. I love peanut butter and jelly. Every time I come here to the States, like, I just eat that all the time. <laughs> so they don't have that. They don't understand that in Spain. But she always cut it into like four little squares, right? And that was like the best thing in the world, huh? If it wasn't cut into four squares, it didn't taste as good. And I was just thinking in heaven, you know, like our ladies can be waiting for me with a peanut butter and chili sandwich. You know? Another thing that I really like, I like to travel. And I'm thinking, well, why, why can't we travel in heaven too, you know? The new heavens and the new earth, the new universe. So like maybe one day it's going to be like, hey, you know, do you hear like, like Johnny's going to have, he's having a birthday party on like the third galaxy over. You know, Jesus is invited. Oh yeah, all right, I'm going. And you just like, you go flying through the galaxies. Kind of just kind of let your heart just be expanded. There's one that I'm going to end with this image because it's time for lunch. This is from a dream of St. John Bosco which I don't know what it's called in English because I don't know if it's translated. There's a book of the dreams of John Bosco. There's only 40 dreams and he had like a hundred and some dreams. But this is one where he sees kind of like the future of the Salesians and at one point he finds himself in, this big, in a big field and then 
Saint Dominic Savio comes to meet him. And he's accompanied by other young men who are older than Saint Dominic, but had also lived in the Oratory of Don Bosco and are in heaven. And they come out and he's just beautifully dressed. He has all these jewels and he's just radiantly, he's astonished by the beauty of Dominic Savio. And they start to, to talk. And I'm going to skip a few things. You have to look it up for yourselves if you want to read it. Don Bosco said, asking myself, am I sleeping or am I awake? I clapped my hands and felt myself to make sure that I was seeing reality. And I was like, am I dreaming? Pinch yourself. Ow. Yeah, I'm, I'm not dreaming. And he saw the host of boys. St. Dominic Savio speaks to Don Bosco first. Don Bosco can't speak. He's just so stunned by the vision. He's like, where's your courage? Don Bosco, are you not the Don Bosco that I, that I admired in my life? Why are you there standing silent? Say something. Summoning my courage, I replied, I am shaking because I don't know where I am. You are in the abode of happiness, Savio answered, where one experiences every joy, every delight. Is this the reward of the just? Is this heaven? St. Dominic responds, Not at all. Here we do not enjoy supernatural happiness, but only a natural one, although greatly magnified. Everything here then is natural? Yes, only enhanced by God's power. Oh, I exclaimed, I thought this was paradise. Oh, no, no, answered St. Dominic Savio. No human eye can look upon the beauty of paradise. In this music, is this the music which you enjoy in heaven? <laughs> no, Don Bosco, this is not the music of heaven. This is just natural music that has been enhanced by God's power, of course. John Bosco, and this light which outshines the very sun's brilliance, is it a supernatural light? Is it heavenly light? And at this point, I think Dominic Savage is like, all right, I'm trying to get through to here, Don Bosco. <laughs> this is not heaven. This is not supernatural light. You can't even imagine what supernatural light is. But the fact is that he was so stunned by the vision that he was less speechless. He asked to see him poke a little bit of supernatural light. He said, no one can see it until he has come to see God as he is. The faintest ray of that light would instantly strike one dead because the human senses are not sturdy enough to endure it. I'm going to skip a few things because it's, we have to go. But in the end, he asks, what then do you enjoy in paradise? And Dominic Savi responds, that defies all telling, Don Bosco. The happiness of heaven no mortal beings can ever know until they die and are reunited with their maker. But one thing I can tell you, we enjoy God and nothing else. We have to end the talk because in one minute they're expecting us. The girls will be over there dying of hunger while we're here contemplating the greatness of God's beauty in heaven. So we're going to give thanks to the Lord and ask that he might bring to fruition the, the truth of our faith and to have a true Christian hope to live and enjoy Jesus Christ here and there. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. As it was in the beginning, it is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen.
In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.